Well, I'm real excited uh, today. Um, this is a special day for us because we have a, a guest speaker as well. And, um, you know, we planned this uh, weeks in advance. And so um, we had no idea the extraordinary events that we would witness, um, the heartbreaking, heartrending events that we would see uh, this past Wednesday at the Capitol. And so, um, and so we're, we're excited today to be able to really talk about what it means uh, to be a citizen, uh, not only of heaven, but a citizen of the United States. And so uh, today I want to introduce to you uh, a gentleman that uh, I consider a new friend of mine. I met him uh, a few weeks ago. His name is Josh Hirschberger. And Josh is the director of the Daniel Initiative, and he is the general counsel for the Indiana Family Institute. And so Josh is an attorney, he's a, he's a minister of the gospel, and he is, he is a speaker. He is licensed to practice uh, law in Indiana, Kentucky, and Tennessee, and he represents churches and Christian ministries uh, really all over, all over the nation. He also serves as a teaching pastor at his church in southeast Indiana, and uh, he routinely speaks at churches and conferences and ministry events about what it means uh, to be a gospel-centered citizen. And, uh, and so uh, he is the author of a new book called The Good Citizen. He also hosts a podcast, which is outstanding, uh, called The Good Citizen Podcast. And that podcast is really dedicated to equipping church leaders and committed Christians to be gospel-centered citizens in a post-Christian America. And so uh, Josh and his wife Carissa uh, live in Hanover, Indiana, and uh, they have two children, uh, Ariana and Gabriel. And so I know you're really going to love uh, the message that God has given Josh today. So would you all give them a warm uh, Greenwood welcome for Josh Hersberger as he comes on up. Good morning, Stins Crossing. If you would turn with me to Philippians chapter number one. Verse number 27, we'll start actually in verse number 20, Philippians chapter number 1 and verse number 20, and as Pastor Luck mentioned, uh, wow, what a week to talk about citizenship, <laughs> we, we did not know when we set this up. Because of those events, let's turn first to the words of God, uh, to the scriptures, Philippians chapter number 1 and verse number 20, um, a little bit of context for this passage as we get started, uh, this particular epistle, of course, was written by the Apostle Paul, who's a Roman citizen. He had civitas, uh, was the name. But he's also in Roman custody when he writes this. And he's writing it to the Christians at Philippi, a Greek city named for Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. And Philippi would have been at the center of the Macedonian Empire. At its height, Philippi is now under Roman domination. So in summary, Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains, writing to Greek Christians under Roman domination, says this in verse number 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Look down with me in verse number 27. Only let your conversation or your citizenship be as it becomes the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I want to focus in on that word conversation or citizenship. The Greek word is polytuomai. It literally means to behave as a citizen. 
So here Paul is telling the Christians of Philippi to let their citizenship, the way that they do life in their city, let it be worthy of the gospel. And that's the topic of our study this morning. Now, I love holidays, um, and I love a lot of American holidays, but actually Christmas is not my favorite American holiday. Before you yell Scrooge, give me just a moment, all right? My favorite American holiday is actually Thanksgiving. Why? Because it cuts against our constant sense of self-worship. You know, it's all about me. Because Thanksgiving is about giving thanks to God and other people. Can you imagine sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table and giving this prayer? Oh, great and expanding universe of which I am the center. I want to thank myself for myself. And may all of those gathered around me be constantly mindful of my goodness and greatness, now and forever. Amen. All right, that would be a great way not to host Thanksgiving next year or ever again. All right, but I must admit to you that my reason for enjoying Thanksgiving um, is, is actually a little less sophisticated and less spiritual. You see, when I was a kid, I was attacked by a turkey. I was four or five, I'm walking down to the lake, and I see this little turkey chick. Oh, that's cute, so I think I'll go pet the turkey chick. And as I reach down to pet the turkey chick, I hear a rustling in the underbrush. It's mama turkey. Now, I'm a curious person, and I know that that God's ways are higher than mine, but I cannot figure out what God was thinking when he made the turkey. Uh, And so just in case you haven't looked at one closely recently, um, here's a picture of a turkey. It's, It's nice plumage kind of like a North American peacock, but then look at its head. It has the head of a, a demon, all right? It's, it's like some jokester angel. I don't know if you ever played with Legos. was up there putting the birds together. He's like, oh, here's that. I'm going to put that right there. The thing that comes off of his nose, it's called a snood. It has no known purpose other than to give us nightmares, all right? And so I completely digress. But here I am. I'm leaning down to pet the turkey chick, and out of the underbrush comes this demon-headed birdzilla, all right? It comes, and it's pecking me on the back, and I ran up to my mom. I was like, hey, turkey mama, meet my mama, and it ran off. So what really happened was the turkey ran to its mama. I ran to mine. That's all that really happened, but still, I was terrified. So I mentioned that Thanksgiving is my favorite American holiday. <laughs> Towards the end of December, hey, Josh, Would you like some more stuffing or some more sweet potatoes? Nah, pass me some very delicious and very deceased turkey. Uh, Some of you are like, this guy needs therapy. I'm sure none of you were ever traumatized when you were a child. Well, in a similar way, the United States is my favorite country. Though our past is certainly not perfect, it is impressive. We stood up to one of the global powers at the time and won. Our first president, when given the opportunity to be a king, went back to his farm, and we built a public on new ideas, freedom and self-governance. But that freedom was a very particular type of freedom. It was an ordered liberty. It was a freedom to build a society according to God's good design, based on Judeo-Christian principles and moderate enlightenment ideas. Now, freedom has taken on kind of a new meaning. And you may have seen, seen this. We used to be kind of one nation under God, reflecting that good guidance. Now we're, in a sense, a nation that practices not ordered liberty, but open license. This is now a freedom from God's good guidance and God's authority. So perhaps we were once a nation under God. Now we seem to be a nation over God, and now we're over all of God's guidance and authority in our particular society. I am sure you sense that. And then we come to 2021. And I don't have to tell you how divided we are, how polarized we are. We're facing a global pandemic, rising challenges around the world, and asking questions we haven't asked for a long time, like, will our republic endure? 
And so with that context in mind, here's the big idea for this morning. As Christians, we are called to follow Jesus in every area of our lives, including in our role as citizen. That's the topic of our study. We've seen that in Philippians chapter number one and verse number 27. But here's the billion dollar question, and that's a million dollar question adjusted for inflation, all right? Um, How exactly are we supposed to do that in a polarized and increasingly plural society? Well, here's how. This morning I want to give you four steps to being a gospel-centered citizen. Four steps to being a gospel-centered citizen. As Pastor mentioned, I do lead the Daniel Initiative, which is a new effort um, underneath Indiana Family Institute to build relationships between the ministers of God and the ministers of government with the goal of ministering to them, but then also partnering with them to seek the common good. In sum, many of you could teach me about how to follow Jesus as a small business owner, as a mom, as a school teacher, as a healthcare worker. I have the, the privilege to work in this space. At the intersection of faith and public life, I don't have it all figured out, but I am doing my very best to follow Jesus in this space and want to tell you what I've been studying and what I've been learning. Now, some of you are probably sweating, including Pastor Luck, all right? <laughs> what is he gonna say, all right? Here's my promise to churches as I speak on this issue. I do not talk about particular issues, or particular politicians. Rather, I believe the most important thing that I can do today is to provide you a biblical foundation for this area of your life so that then you can go apply it according to your conscience in the public square. Let's jump right in. So step number one is to go over or review your role as citizen. These steps will spell good. We're all supposed to be good citizens, right? And so the first one is to go over or review your role as citizen. When was the last time we kind of took a break from media, social media, etc., and said, what did God say? about this area of my life. I need to do that with finances. I need to do that in my marriage. Now, how about my role as citizen? So I want to go through a couple things. First of all, some of what scripture says. But then I want to look at some historical examples. How have other Christians navigated this um, through history? And then I want to apply those principles and examples to the American Republic. So let's jump right in. And again, I think this is the most important piece of what I'm going to say this morning. And that is, what does the Bible say about this? So I'm going to give you a couple principles. The first one is that government is God's ideas. Romans uh, 13, 1 through 7. I really enjoyed listening to Chris's message from last week. If you didn't have a chance to listen to that, please go back and catch some of those foundational principles. But government is one of the three key institutions created by God. The family, the church, and the state. So this was not dreamed up by some pagan chieftain, uh, by some secular philosopher. This was God's idea. This is seconded by 2 Peter chapter number 2, which says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. So what is the purpose of government? If God instituted government, what is its purpose? Twofold. Number one, to punish or restrain evil, and number two, we miss this one a lot, to promote good. It's right there at the end of this verse, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So government's not dirty. It's not something that Christians should avoid. It's something that God created. The second principle that I would mention is that government isn't God. Jesus has a a great teaching on this in Matthew chapter number 22. In verse number 21, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to show you that verse. Render therefore unto Caesar 
the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. This was the Pharisees coming to Jesus saying, should we pay taxes to the Romans? And this was Jesus' response. It's important because he was looking at a Roman coin to know what was on the coin. So this coin was called a denarius. And on the front of the coin was an image of Caesar with the inscription, Son of the Divine Augustus. The front of the coin was a claim to spiritual or to political power, political authority. But on the back of the coin was a depiction of Caesar's mother with the inscription, Goddess of Peace, along with the, another inscription, Highest Priest. So whereas the front of the coin was a claim to political authority, the back of the coin was a claim to spiritual authority or worship. You see, Roman emperors were god kings. Another word I heard recently was sacro-monarchs. They claimed to be kings, but also God. And so what did Jesus say in this verse? Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, unto God the things that are God's. He's saying, Caesar deserves your civil obedience and respect, but only one king deserves your ultimate allegiance and worship, and Caesar is not that king. And so Jesus was saying, government is not God. Now there's a corollary that I think as American Christians we need to pick up. If government isn't God, then politics isn't religion. Politics isn't religion. Now this would have been something that would have been foreign until recently, but many people, as America has secularized, even Christians, we can pull this into our own lives. Instead of find, finding morality and community, um, a sense of meaning in the local church or in, in God, we find that in politics. And we try to work out our salvation according to the ballot box. That's not biblical. Next is that government needs a guide. Government needs a guide. Now, we've said the government's role is to punish evil and promote good. So it raises the question, well, whose definition of good and evil should we be punishing and promoting? So we are in church. I know this can be a little controversial, but we are studying the Bible. So whose definition should it be? Well, God's, okay? Um, that was fairly simple. I love how Martin Luther King Jr. put it. He said, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool." The church does not recapture its prophetic zeal. It will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. So I'm always trying to figure out ways to illustrate things, to help remember them, but also to explain them. Um, so I've tried to illustrate it this way. Many times in scripture, the church is, is symbolized with a light. All right, so the, the church's role, fulfill the great commission, do great good works, appoint people to Jesus. All right, and then the state, even in Romans 13, is symbolized with a sword. And this is a, a real Roman gladius, or at least a mock-up. I always have to tell church security teams, look, I've got a sword, but it's just a prop, okay? <laughs> Don't worry about it. All right, so throughout history, you have leaders of the state that are supposed to restrain evil, and they're supposed to promote good, but they figure out, you know, that's a tough thing. So it's a lot easier if we can do that, if we can kind of co-opt the church's spiritual authority. You know, because it's a lot easier to get people to do things if you can threaten their head and their soul, right? And so many times that happened. But also, you have leaders of the church. Hey, we're supposed to be making disciples, but that's hard work. It takes time, and it's much easier if you can coerce converts, kind of convert or die sort of thing. And one example of this would be when Martin Luther was, was tried in front of the Diet of Worms. Who presided over that? The Pope? Nope. It was Henry V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. So when I put those two things together, you think, what do you get when you have a sword and a light? 
Well, you get a light saber, a weapon of terrifying power. And I've, I would never be coordinated enough to wield one of these things, but there it is. And this is the tyrant's weapon of choice, co-opting church and state together. They were supposed to be separate institutions with separate purposes. And so again, government needs a guide. And the church's role in American society, like in any society, is to be a moral voice to the state. I will mention that I'm going to spend most of my time this morning on step number one. So if some of you are thinking, wow, we spent a lot of time on number one, that's three more to go. All right, so we're going to spend most of our time here. The next point would be that government guards good works. Government guards good, good works. We mentioned that the role of the state is to punish evil and promote good. And if the state's fulfilling that role, the church is doing good works to point people to Jesus, the church and state should be partners, not opponents. Now that can be complicated at times, but it is still a principle from Scripture. Finally, I'll mention that government will go away. Have you ever thought about the political implications of this phrase? Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians chapter number 2 and verse number 10. Then at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What kind of Lord is Jesus? He is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords. That surely has political implications. And we just celebrated Christmas. We celebrated Emmanuel, that God is with us. And we like that due to our democratic sensibilities. But don't think for a moment that that was an abdication of Christ's authority. You see, Jesus Christ is the high king of the universe who was born in a manger to inaugurate his redemptive and revolutionary reign and will one day return on a white horse with the host of heaven behind him to make all things new. And on that day, human government will end. Sin will go away. Suffering will be banished. And death itself will die. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. First Chronicles 29, 11. Can we all say amen? Amen. I'm getting my worship up, on, up in here. All right, so this dual citizenship, many times leaders throughout history have said that makes Christians bad citizens, but I would disagree. Why? Because it keeps us from some starry-eyed patriotism that can't see any faults in our nation. It steals us to do the hard works of citizenship, knowing that utopia will elude us until his kingdom comes. And it gives us eternal hope, regardless of if culture turns against us. So again, here are five critical principles that we need to remember as we engage in public life. Moving more quickly now, I mentioned considering historical examples. I love this quote, there's 2,000 years of Christianity between Jesus and your grandma. And so let's look at just a few of these. I think of Daniel, the Old Testament prophet and statesman who prayed for and provided wisdom to four kings and two competing and diverse empires. And that's why we think he's a great example for today. You think of Queen Esther, who became the queen of Persia in an ancient and really messed up version of The Bachelor. <laughs> this is exactly what goes down. All right. And when given the opportunity to retire and just enjoy her position as queen, she risks her life and saves her people from genocide. You think of John the Baptist, 
who told Herod Antipas that it was not okay for him to marry his brother's wife, who was also his niece. I'll tell you, it was a really, really messed up royal family, um, and he was martyred for that. Jesus called him the greatest man born to date. Moving a little bit further into church history, I think of St. Augustine, who stood at the end, the collapse of the Roman Empire, and pointed Christians in that time to God's eternal kingdom. I think of Martin Luther, who stood at the Diet of Worms, said, I can do no other, saying, I stand on the word of God that sparked a reformation, but also sent shockwaves to the power structure of medieval Europe, laid the foundation for religious liberty. Alexander Hamilton, one of our great founding fathers, who said this, no citizen of the U.S. shall refrain from Turkey on Thanksgiving Day. All right, like this guy really does need therapy, okay? William Wilberforce, what required a civil war in the United States was accomplished in Great Britain by the efforts of William Wilberforce and others banning slavery in the world's first globe-spanning empire. Harriet Tubman, who relied on her belief in God, her certainty in God, to take at least 13 different trips into the American South and bring out slaves during slavery. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian who stood against the Holocaust and against Hitler and paid for that with his life. Corrie ten Boom, who, by the way, was in her late 40s, early 50s when this happened, her and her family saved over 800 people from the German death camps. Her father and her sister died because of these efforts, and she spent time in a concentration camp herself. And then the Reverend, this is a part of his formal title, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who decried injustice and used scripture to stand for the equal treatment of all Americans. And so, and I take all of these things together I see that the Christian faith is not one of pious disengagement. It's real, it's gritty. These men and women stood athwart history to proclaim the truth. And so this morning I do have a few quiz questions for you. You probably didn't expect that, but a few quiz questions just so we make sure we're tracking. True or false, the church's history is primarily the story of seedy preachers, self-righteous Bible thumpers, and small-minded bigots. That would be false, all right? True or false, as a Christian, you stand shoulder to shoulder with these giants of the faith, who down through the ages have protected children, dignified women, helped end chattel slavery, stood up to tyrants, gave their lives and fortunes for the oppressed, and laid the groundwork for the freedom, peace, and prosperity of advanced modernity. That is true. And that is why when I step into the public square, I do so as a Christian and with confidence, because I follow these individuals as they followed Jesus now, let's apply this to the United States. And every Christian, whether here, China, Germany, would have to say, here are these principles. How do I apply those principles to my form of government? And uh, I've summarized it this way. We live in a republic that makes you royal and assumes you're righteous. Now, I love the United States. I love technology. And there's something that's happened recently that I think could, could really be a thing. With the rise of self-driving vehicles, it's only a matter of time until there's a country song where the guy's truck leaves them, all right? It's, it's, it's going to happen, all right? So you, you have to love the America. You have to love country music. All right, so there it is. All right, so we live in a republic. We elect our own representatives, right? Send them to Washington. That makes you royal. This is a key point. In Rome, when Jesus said, render to Caesar, who was Caesar? Caesar was the person with ultimate political authority in their system. Who has ultimate political authority in the American system? What does the Constitution say? We the people, right? So sometimes we look at, oh, well, Congress or the president. No, who has ultimate authority in the American system? We do. 
So it makes you royal and then assumes you're righteous. Now certainly that's from scripture, but that could be perhaps a little controversial. So step back for a second. What does self-government require? Self-control, all right? And so John Adams, who helped put this experiment together, said our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. Why you have to have self-control to have self-government. So let's pull these ideas together and say here I think are three guiding principles for Christian citizens. And as we step into the public square, I will define a gospel-centered citizen. Sometimes people ask me that. What's a gospel-centered citizen? I believe a gospel-centered citizen is a Christian that navigates or maintains these three tensions as they engage in public life. Number one, we're Christians. Our ultimate allegiance is not to a political party or to a politician, but to Christ and his kingdom. Next, we are Caesar. We have authority, therefore we have responsibility in the American system. And lastly, we are citizens. We should seek the common good of all people and not just ourselves. And so we should hold these three guiding principles in tension as we engage in public life. Now, moving on to some pretty uh, quick practical steps. As I was just praying about God, you know, how in my own life should I be doing everything you want me to do as a citizen? All right, how can I check the boxes on those things to say I, I'm doing what Christ has wanted me to do? I know it's going to be a tension to manage, not a problem to solve, but what should I be doing? Well, the first really simple, obvious one is step number two, offer prayer for and build relationships with government officials. We see this in 1 Timothy 2. You probably know the verse, exhort therefore, first of all, prayers, uh, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of, of thanks, four distinct types of prayers, really interesting study. Um, should be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are, are in authority. I've noticed that it's kind of hard to pray for someone if you don't really know who they are. And so we have, have made an effort in the state of Indiana and have colleagues around the country in, in similar efforts that are working to build relationships between pastors and elected officials. One example, we were able to connect about 38 ministry leaders with uh, Senator Todd Young earlier this year during the pandemic I was just so blessed. I asked the pastors to list what they were doing in their communities. He obviously was blessed as well, took to Twitter uh, to talk about it. Here's a group of pastors uh, from Fort Wayne coming down to pray uh, for their senator. And just this last week, I had the, the privilege to attend uh, the State House prayer service put on by our chaplaincy ministry. And here's Governor Holcomb. Also, Chief Justice Loretta Rush prayed, and she prayed something that really struck me. As she's praying for the judicial branch, she says, God, help us to be mindful that we will one day stand before your bench. I thought that was such a powerful prayer. Now, it's hard to pray for someone you don't know who, if you don't know who they are. And so on our website, you can also just go to the Secretary of State's website and just ask, who are my elected officials? Just Google that, Secretary of State, Indiana, who are my elected officials? It'll pull up this search function. And what I like about this search function is it'll give you all the way from federal down to your local and school officials, there's your prayer list. All right, so if you're looking for a practical takeaway, there's a great way to search for them. Step number three, offer solutions, partner with government to solve key problems. Again, church and state should be partners rather than opponents. Well, what does that look like practically? I asked Governor Holcomb, what are some things the church can work on? He racks off foster care, the drug crisis, recidivism. A couple of things we're working on there um, this is Senator Zay, who authored a bill that allows the care portal, which gives DCS the opportunity to reach out to churches if they're about to take a kid out of someone's home, allows churches to bring in tangible needs like a bed or clothes, and keep those kids out of foster care. 
Um, when this picture was taken earlier last year, um, it was already over 150 kids that have been kept in their homes due to that program. The Attorney General asked us to put together a faith-based breakout session at his annual drug abuse uh, symposium as we brought in four different ministries from around the state that are doing just incredible work to point to Jesus and say he's the true answer for addiction. And so those are just a few examples of the remarkable opportunities we have to partner with government to solve key problems. Now here's where, in a sense, the rubber meets the road, doing the hard work of Christian citizenship in the public square. Now I don't know if you've noticed this, but people generally, you know, they're talking, they're nice to you, hey, how is your life? And then you start talking about politics, and it's like, okay. It's kind of like this cat. Um, it's like animal to alien. And some of you are like, I have a cat. How dare you make fun of cats? And so I'm an equal opportunity offender. There's a dog, all right? It just happens. <laughs> and so this last year, I was just burdened thinking that, you know, the church, again, is an institution created by God. It is an independent institution. But many times Christian citizens are influenced by the major political parties and movements in the United States to, well, what should we think about? What's important? And so in a sense, we get catechized or discipled by the news media or the political parties, and I want Christian citizens, including myself, to be catechized and discipled by this book. So I was just praying about what would the church's platform look like in public life? And this is what God led me to. It is a star-shaped platform. And the star, of course, is in the American flag, but also in scripture, the star is a symbol that points people to Jesus, the star at Bethlehem, angels, etc. And so at the center of this star is the Imago Dei, the fact that we are all created in the image of God, regardless of who we are, what we believe, etc. And so at the top of this would be the sanctity of life. Next, racial unity and justice, that all people, regardless of ethnicity, are of equal dignity and worth. The Matthew 25 issues, um, of course, that we're to care for the prisoner, the poor, the immigrant. Next, the biblical sexual ethic. The marriage is between man and a woman. And that sex is an immutable characteristic created by God for our good. And then religious liberty for all people. All right, those, three, those last three words, all for all people, are really important. Here's something that I noticed. Again, as I just went back to Scripture and said, what would God have us care about? Is that this star, in, in, in one sense, a couple of these are conservative sounding. Others sound more liberal. But they are all Biblical. Now, I know that Christians will disagree in good conscience on how to apply these principles in public life, but I believe as Christians we should be caring about and promoting all five of these rather than just having other people tell us what to care and think about. So what does that look like in a practice? How, how would you actually work that out? I think there are four pieces um, to public life. First of all, social media. Do you realize that social media is truly the first place that as a Christian, you do public life? <laughs> and um, just think about the grade that you would give the church over the last year on social media as it relates to citizenship. And I, I love the post, welcome to our church. You know, come to this special event that we're having. Everyone's welcome. And then about two posts later, calling somebody either a Nazi or a libtard, okay? <laughs> it seems like there's a disassociation in, in between these two things. And if you're hearing my message this morning, I'm really encouraging Christians to think about this is an area that Jesus cares about. And so you shouldn't just split off, okay, well, I'm a Christian and I go to church, but then I do politics over here and I don't connect the two. And so when we engage in social media, are we, are we being a Christian? Are we keeping God's kingdom first? 
Are we engaging as, in a sense, Caesar? And then are we caring about the good of all people? The next thing is public policy. Now, many times when I'm speaking on gospel-centered citizenship, people ask me, well, how can you be gospel-centered and still talk about public policy? I look at it this way, that if I truly love my neighbor, then I will say something about the policies that will affect their lives. Now, it's really key, and I, I hope you grab this. I think many, and I showed you those five points, those are non-negotiables. But how we apply those in public life, many times are going to be disagreements according to Christian conscience. And Paul gives us a great matrix for how to do that in Romans 14. You would think he would say, don't have an opinion about all of those controversial issues, but what does Paul say in Romans 14? He says, be fully persuaded in your own mind, but then exhort one another and lift one another up for the community of believers. And I think this is a, a great, uh, again, template for Christians that are engaging in this space. Whereas we get on social media, somebody disagrees with you politically, anathema. Why is it that we are more comfortable in having conversations and doing life with people in our own political party more so than we are with brothers and sisters in Christ that hold different political views than we do. I think that's a problem in the American church. So we can practice this. Where we're still engaged, but we know that there are going to be differences. Next, of course, voting. I won't go too far into this, but there is actually an interesting passage in Scripture which gives us uh, four different characteristics. Exodus 18.21, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, kind of sets out uh, four characteristics to look for in elected officials. So According to the argument today, of course, as we are engaging in our role as citizen, we should apply our biblical principles in that role. And lastly, it makes sense that if we're in a participatory democratic republic, that God would call some Christians to run for public office. And so again, just trying to give you just a, a brief framework for doing, again, this is really, really hard work. It is a tension to be managed, not a problem to be solved. And if you follow me on social, you know that I'm trying to do this. And sometimes people are like, I can't believe you talked about this. I can't believe you hold that position. So, well, I can either be completely silent or try to give Christians an example of what this looks like in the American system. So, again, here's how to practice that in public life. So, in summary, be a good citizen. First of all, go over, review your role as citizen. Offer prayer for and build relationships with governing officials. Offer solutions and partner with governing, governing officials to solve key problems and do the hard work of Christian citizenship in the public square. I'm sure, like, like me, you were stunned by the events uh, this past Wednesday, this past week. And those events made me think of a, a coat, storming the Capitol, etc. Uh, and no, not a turncoat, rather a black coat. And I came across this story recently. I've studied American history for a long time, but I'd, I'd never seen this before. And this was the, the black coat that Abraham Lincoln wore during his second inaugural address. But then also on that fateful night in April of 1865 at Ford's Theater. It was a custom-made black coat, and embroidered in the lining of the coat was an eagle clutching a banner emblazoned with these words, one country, one destiny. What I, what I love about that is that Abraham Lincoln, in a sense, wore his mission statement. He held the nation together uh, through the Civil War, set us on a path to global influence. I'm afraid, though, that now the legacy, the mission that Lincoln wore 
is now a bit worn. And we are all asking those questions. Can this republic endure? Where are we headed as a nation? So I encourage Christian citizens to think about this date, 2050. And regardless of how old you are, we have the power, we have the time, and with God's help, we can impact what happens about 30 years down the road. But we need to start working now. And so where does the United States go in, in 2050? I think all of us can envision <clears throat> a scenario where the light of liberty dims and goes out due to greed, neglect, selfishness, and division. But what if there was a different vision for American citizenship? And if you don't get anything else this morning, please grab hold of this. I think we need to change our story about citizenship. We are creatures of narrative, aren't we? We live in stories. We measure the success in our life by how we're doing according to our own story. Well, what is the story that we as American Christians are telling ourselves about our citizenship? I think on one hand, we have an exiled church that says, done with you, I'm just going to sit back, do my life, do my church, and I am not going to engage in that mess. Further, we're getting kicked out of the public square, we're increasingly secular, and so we act as if we're an exiled church that has nothing to say in the life of this republic. And that's on one hand. On the other hand, we have the embattled church. We're losing America. We must engage in ever-increasing political fights, even if we have to jeopardize biblical principles to do so. If we have an exiled church, we have an embattled church. I think what our story should be is that we should be an engaged church. That as an institution equips individual citizens, or individual Christians, to be good citizens, whose, whose citizenship is worthy of the gospel. What if... What if we built strong churches? And I was so blessed to see the elders up here just being able to know Pastor Luck for a short period of time. I know you're building disciples here. What if we built strong churches that built disciples that make a difference? And what if those disciples went out and engaged their communities? What if those disciples who just so happened to be good citizens renew the promise of the American experiment? And what if by 2050, we renewed our cities, state, and nation through the power of the gospel. I can't get behind the exiled church. I can't get behind the embattled church. But I can be an engaged citizen that tries to honor Jesus in this area of my life. Lincoln once called a crowd at an American battlefield to dedicate themselves to the unfinished work of that war so that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Now, as American Christians on the American mission field, Christ is calling us to the unfinished work of the Great Commission and to the hard work of Christian citizenship. You see, Abraham Lincoln talked about the new birth. Well, it is the new birth in Christ that is the surest hope of a new birth of freedom in our times. This morning, I want to ask you, and I love the mission of this church, taking your next step in following Jesus. Can I encourage you today to think about what is your next step? Is it to take some time away from social and away from the media and to dive into God's word? And I'm trying to do this in, in a book that I'll mention later. To dive into God's word, do your own study. What does God say about this issue? How should I live out this role in my life? Maybe that's what you need to do. 
You need to step back and evaluate it. Maybe you've given in to that political idolatry, making politics your religion. Maybe you need to stay back, step back for a second. Maybe you're filled with anxiety about what's going to happen. Take a step back. Next, are you actively praying for your elected officials? Are you taking some time to try to get to know them, reach out to them, minister to them? Think about the, the politician you just can't stand. Well, rather than putting up a dartboard, are you praying for them? Have you thought about their soul? Next, are you helping engage in a way that God's equipped you to solve some of the tough problems in our communities? Foster care, the drug crisis, our secular society can't figure them out. The answer is Jesus. And so are we engaging there? And then are we doing the hard work? Maybe God's calling you to run for office. Are we doing the hard work of being a good citizen in our society? So what's your next step when it comes to citizenship? I always try to wrap up what I say in just a a phrase. And this was a statement by Daniel Webster, a statesman in the 1800s. He said, whatever makes men and women good Christians makes them good citizens. So with God's help, let's dedicate ourselves to be that kind of good citizen. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for this day as we head into our response time. God, I pray that you just open my heart to where I failed you, where I need to keep working. And then I pray for the people of this church and thank you for the opportunity to be here May you just help us as we evaluate this area of our lives and then pray for our country. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to, to lead a song, I want to have um, just a, a few moments of, of silence where I'm going to stop talking after I ask these questions. I want to give you, before you head back into the busyness of life, just a chance to have a little reflection in your own heart and life. And I'm going to ask Pastor Luck to come up and actually pray together with us for the country. So this is our chance to look inside and then we're going to pray for the nation as a whole. So a couple questions. How will you change your story about citizenship? How will you follow Jesus in this area of your life? Have you made an idol out of politics? Have you disengaged in this area of responsibility? Have you lost a biblical vision for citizenship? And so what's your next step? And so I'm gonna take just a few seconds here and then I'll ask that Pastor Luck come up and pray. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just confess that uh, this week is, has um, in so many ways been um, anxiety-filled and, and just disturbing in so many ways. And Lord, it uh, caused us all to just reflect on how in the world could this, this kind of thing happen. And so, Lord, we know that our our nation has struggles and problems that it needs to deal with, but we just want to say thank you for what you've blessed us with. We want to thank you for the, for the country that we, that we have. And Lord, for uh, the men and women that sacrificed to see us to the place where we are today. And so God, we, we just open ourselves up to be used by you 
to continue to to sacrifice for the good of the people in our community and the schools around us, for, for the good of people in our nation, and most of all, for your glory. And so God, I ask that we would just not sit on the sidelines and just watch and complain, but God, that we would take a step of engagement, a step of spirit-led engagement, and that you would use us. You've equipped us with different gifts, different abilities, different graces. And so that means that the outflow of this will be in different ways. That's okay. But God, I pray that you would just make it clear where you want each of us to be and how you want us to be engaged in our local and state and even federal government. And so God, we pray for unity in our country. God, we pray for healing. And we ask that the church would really be the light. God, I ask that, that you would use us as the body of Christ, Lord, to show and reveal love, that we, would, that we would relate to people in grace and in truth, just like Jesus did. And so God, I ask that, um, that you would use us. And Lord, I also pray, as we've seen throughout church history, as we've seen in, throughout scripture, that, that you've granted revival and awakenings where where scores of people have have come to the saving knowledge of of Jesus and so we want to we want to ask that you would begin that revival in us that you would begin it in our church that we would be right with you that we would be walking with you so that your your grace and love would would be reflected in all that we do and say so God I just uh, thank you for all of these things and we we thank you for our new president and our new vice president. We ask that you would grant them wisdom to make decisions that will honor you and bless the people that they have been entrusted to lead. And so God, would you grant that, um, not for us as much, but for your glory. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen.